0: Please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me this evening to the Old Testament book of 1 Kings, chapter 20, and I would direct your attention to verse 28, 1 Kings, chapter 20, and verse 28, and there came a man of God, and spake unto the king of Israel, and said, Thus saith the Lord, Because the Syrians have said, The Lord is God of the hills, but He is not God of the valleys. Therefore will I deliver all this great multitude into thine hand, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. The word Calvinist is used as a moniker uh, for those who adhere to the doctrines of grace, uh, for those like ourselves who place the salvation of men in the hands of the sovereign God. And this includes things like the doctrine of predestination and election and reprobation and providence and, and so on. But at its heart, at its heart, these truths and adherence to these truths is really an all-engrossing sight of God's divine majesty. That's what it is in its simplicity. An all-engrossing sight of God's divine majesty. And that, of course, infiltrates the very fabric of our being so that we are left with the conclusion that truly, truly, He is all in all, and we are left primarily with falling down before him to worship him and to adore him as the great God of heaven and earth. But this cuts against the grain of the natural man. Indeed, this is entirely unacceptable to the natural man. Why would that be? Well, man is finite. And man knows that he is is finite. And man, left to his depravity, is inclined to create gods or a god, idols, after their own image. And so, as a consequence, men tend to seek to place limits on God himself, to imagine that God, like them, has limitations. And this tendency, of course, pervades everything. It's true in all of the uh, false religions that abound throughout the history of the world. It's true in the heart of every natural man. Their conception and construction of God is pervaded by this notion of limitation. And we see it coming to the fore here in the passage that's in front of us. You'll remember. Uh, Perhaps the context for all of this, King Ahab is on the throne of Israel at the time. Uh, Ben-Hadad is the king of Syria, and he has set his sights on dominating Israel. He has determined to wage war uh, against Samaria and threatens to do so, indeed uh, attempts to do so, and he makes boasts even in his drunken stupor of how he will um, destroy Israel and all that comes with them. And we have in that context within this chapter the famous line, which has been repeated throughout history, in verse 11, where King Ahab replies to this boast and answers him and says, "'Tell him that has been Hadad. Let not him that girdeth on his harness boast himself.'" as he that putteth it off. In other words, you know, the, the warrior does not boast before he's won, right? It's before he puts his armor on, but after the the war or fight when taking his armor off. And so Ahab answers him, well, they go to war and um, the Lord is pleased to to grant the slaughter of Assyria. And so they're delivered into Israel's hand and soundly routed and defeated. But the Lord comes by word of his prophet to the king and says, they'll be back. Syria will be back in, in a year's time. And sure enough, uh, in, a, in Syria, the people are talking to, to the king and they're saying, you know, here's the problem. Uh, the problem is that we miscalculated and our tactics were off. And so you'll notice in verse 23, and the servants of the king of Syria said unto him, Their gods are gods of the hills. Therefore they were stronger than we, but let us fight against them in the plain. And surely we shall be stronger than they. And so Syria comes back uh, to wage war against Israel. And indeed, when they do, it is uh, rather overwhelming and intimidating. Notice verse 27. And the children of Israel were numbered and were all present and went against them. And the children of Israel pitched before them like two little flocks of kids. But the Syrians filled the country. And it's at this point then that God sends his man to come and to speak uh, to King Ahab. And you'll notice that his remarks are not um, directed toward Ahab, virtue that is found in him, nor toward Israel in the first place, but they are directed to Ben-Hadad himself. And the Lord says it has, in essence, come into my ears what they have spoken about me, what they have said about me, how they have described me in my limitations, that the Lord God is the God of the hills, but he is not the God of the valleys. Therefore, for this reason, I will shut the mouth of these fools. Therefore will I deliver all this great multitude into thy hand, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. So here we see this tendency of limiting the unlimited God. we well, note, first of all, direct your attention to the unlimited God himself. So first of all, the unlimited God. And we begin with the end of the verse, which is to begin with God himself. It says, and ye shall know that I am the Lord, that I am Jehovah. You'll remember the language of Isaiah when God comes through his prophet and says, I am the Lord, I am Jehovah, there is none like me. And then he comes and says, I am Jehovah, there is none besides me. No, I do not know any other. He is the one living and true God, And there are no others before him because there are no others at all, right? This is Jehovah who is independent, the only one, the only being independent and self-existent in his very being so that all, all else derives its being from him. He is truly unlimited. He's unlimited in his omnipresence and immensity as regards space. You and I are limited. We are in one place at one time, only and ever. We have limitations to our, our bodies, to our minds, to everything else that is about us. He is unlimited in these things. He's unlimited in his eternal nature, as regards time. We, in our very existence, experience a succession of moments. We are bound to time. He is one who is eternal, who is outside, unlimited by such constraints as this. Indeed, he is infinite in all of his perfections, in all of his perfections, and indeed infinite in each and every perfection that we fix our our minds upon. So he's unlimited in his sovereignty. He is the one who is absolutely in control of all things at all times and in all places, right? None counsel him. For us, who are limited creatures, we learn that there is is wisdom in a multitude of counselors. We receive counsel and need counsel, and kings and great men of the earth, they're known for having their their, their group of, of counselors who advise them and to give them insight and help them to be able to form their decisions, but none counsel God. He is unlimited in his absolute sovereignty. He does all things according to the counsel of his own will. You see how this, this comes out repeatedly in, in Ephesians 1, where it says at the end of verse 5, having spoken, spoken of pre, uh, predestinated us under the adoption of children, according to the good pleasure of His will. And then you see the same thing again when it says in verse 9, according to His good pleasure, which He hath purposed in Himself. And then again in verse 11, according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. He does everything according to his own design and purpose, according to his own eternal decree, according to his will, he governs all. There is none that are accepted from this. There is nothing that is accepted from his unlimited sovereignty. So we can look at the depths of the sea, children, and you read about it in your science books, and you think this is a remarkable part of the unexplored portion of the earth, the depths of these seas, and yet he holds all the seas, as it were, in the palm of his hand. Like you would pour just a tiny bit of water. Into your, your palm. He's the one who hangs the stars. And galaxies. And all that comes with them. In their place. And this, this goes into the very. Warp and woof of the detail. Of our human experience. So that kings. And emperors. And princes and so on. Those like Ben-Hadad. Who think that they can wage war against the one who has infinite, absolute sovereignty, who think that he is there and we are here and that we can do something that will conquer or defeat his purposes and fail to realize that all of the time, as the Bible tells us, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord to direct it whithersoever he will as a watercourse. Placing God into the hands of men never, Even the heart of the king is being directed according to the counsel of God's own will. Promotion does not come from any quarter, north, south, east, or west. The Lord is the one who raises up one and who casts down another. He is unlimited from beginning to end. Everything originates with him. Everything terminates with him. He is truly the unlimited God. He is Jehovah He is the Lord. This is reality. And by that I mean, this is reality. All of this is true, whether or not you know it. All of this is true, whether or not you or Ben-Hadad or any other, acknowledge it. It's reality. He's unlimited in in his very being but you'll notice that i say here that it's true whether you know it or or acknowledge it but notice the text says that god would have that ye shall know that i am the lord he would have it that you would indeed know that he is jehovah that he is the unlimited god and so he gives us this revelation He gives us the revelation in his word that we can read and study and hear preached and meditate upon and sing and so on. He gives us revelation in his providence. Ben-Hadad is about to, to experience that. And Israel, as observers, are going to be made wise through their study of the acts of God at work among them and around them in these things. The fact is, you will come to know that God is the unlimited God. You will You will come to know it either now, under his word and under a proper understanding of his works, like creation and and providence. You will come to know it now, and to know it in your heart, and to know it truly, or you will be made to know it later. But you shall know that he alone is Jehovah, the unlimited God. There are those who vex themselves with all sorts of curious questions, some of which are utter vanity. But the fact is, you either resolve your doubts now, or they will be definitively resolved later. And by later, I mean at death. By later, I mean at the judgment. By later, I mean into and throughout all of eternity. God will not be mocked. He's never mocked. What we sow, we will also reap. But one thing, among others, that is utterly impossible is that God will stand mocked. Mocked as a limited God. Mocked as a mini-God. A God that is fashioned after the minds of men in the image of men made in the likeness of men. No, God will not be mocked. And so the Lord comes to us and he says, and ye shall, says to Israel at the time and to us now, and ye shall know that I am Jehovah, that I am the unlimited God in all of his glory, in all of his majesty, in all of the blinding beauty and brilliance of his very being. We are to come to see and know this. And of course, the way in which we come to know it and come to see it, And come to love it is through the saving knowledge of him, right? He's a God who, in this very verse, is describing himself as one who delivers, who is able to deliver. He's speaking to his people. You are like two little flocks of kids, and here is Syria, and they're filling the entire country. Humanly speaking, no match. But I'm a God who's sovereign, and I'm a God who's unlimited, and I'm a God who saves, a God who delivers a God who redeems, a God who comes and shows forth my own power in the midst of all of our weakness and so on and so forth. This is where we hang our hopes, is in the fact that this unlimited God is therefore entirely capable and more to save poor helpless sinners, however far flung and lost they may be, and however desperate in their depravity they may be, he is able to deliver Able to save. And this is where we find our hope, isn't it? That, that that this Jehovah has revealed himself as God the Son, as the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus indeed is Jehovah. He is Jehovah. And he is the one Jehovah who saves, the God who, who saves his, his people. And so we need to be brought to see ourselves and all of our limitations and in all of the sinful propensities and tendencies that we have within our erring hearts to confess, among other things, our idolatry. Men will say, I spoke sinful words. I had sinful thoughts. I did this sinful deed and another against those we're supposed to love. But at the top of that list is idolatry, coming under the conviction of sin, being humbled before the Almighty God of glory, and confessing the folly of having fashioned in our minds, if not with our hands in another means, vain, empty, broken, helpless, false, dead idols. To acknowledge it before him. We are idolaters, Lord. Save us from our idolatry. Deliver us. Bring us, O Lord, to come savingly by means of Christ, to bow down before the unlimited God. Because here we have unparalleled majesty. And that unparalleled majesty is not for uh, mere intellectual satisfaction. You know, there are those who are attracted to the study of theology because it is intellectually intoxicating. There is nothing bigger, nothing grander, nothing more glorious, nothing more thrilling than to think about the nature of God himself, to think about what he has revealed regarding himself. But this unparalleled majesty is not merely for for the, the vain exercise of of intellectual gymnastics, it demands faith. It demands worship. It demands submission. It demands unbounded service to see the Lord, to be brought before his august majesty, to be savingly won and brought to, 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 be, to bow down before him, leads us to worship. You cannot read theology, study theology, discuss theology, do theology apart from worship. The thought of God demands worship. Here is the unlimited God. Secondly, limiting God, Secondly, we have limiting gone. The text says, because the Syrians have said, the Lord, that is Jehovah, is God of the hills, but he is not God of the valleys. Here they are placing limits. They're saying to the Lord, thus far and no further. The hills is one thing, but the valleys is another. They're placing restrictions upon God, drawing parameters around God, uh, beyond which they say he cannot pass. This is a God, but it is not the God. It is to speak utter gibberish. This is not the God. There are no limits on his being. This is the worship of false gods and indeed in putting their limits on Jehovah notice they they use his name his covenantal name the Lord he is god of the hills he is not god of the valleys they're placing limits on his being and are therefore and are therefore creating idols the fact is that any absence so any Any absence of perfection in God, any, the most minuscule, any absence of perfection in God would make him imperfect. It's impossible. There are no imperfections. There are no lack of perfections within God himself. They're acknowledging some, aren't they? They're saying he has power. They were stronger than us, they beat us in the hills. In the mountains, he's a God who can grant victory. He does have power, and we've suffered it. We've had men die and men made widowers and and children orphans and or women widows and children orphans and so on. We've buried our dead. There is power there, but it's not limitless power. It is a limited, a limited power. They deny his absolute sovereignty. He has control of things, but he does not have control of everything. He is not absolute in his his sovereignty. Every inclination this way really results in making man the end rather than God the end. These are are, are forms of, of, of discourse or argument or whatever else that people engage in in order to seat man as the ultimate end rather than God. And that's where you end up. If you want to talk about the doctrine of election or things that are associated with it, that's where this leads. Man is made bigger. God is made smaller rather than God being. God and great and glorious and man being placed in the dust where he begins, where he he belongs. They're placing limits on on his government, on what he governs in his his divine providence. And they're doing so with calculations that have all the wrong metrics. We, We talk about the difference between first cause and second causes, right? We're not gonna go into the details of, of all of that. But we, we use that language, our confession uses that language. It's drawn from a really rich and, and deep th- theological um, history. We say God is the first cause, right? His decree is what establishes everything. And then he, he, he brings all of that uh, to pass immutably, he brings all of that to pass infallibly as, as the first cause. But then we speak of second causes, and second causes are those things that are more proximate, right? More immediate, you might think, through which God's decree comes to pass. These, through these second causes, it comes to pass. So what would be an example? Um, children, you can think of uh, picking up a rock, and you're, you see a tree and you're aiming for the tree. And so you throw the rock at the tree and you miss, and it goes by the tree and over a wall and then breaks the windshield of a car on the other side of the wall, right? The second causes are you, the rock, throwing the rock, missing the tree, hitting, going over the wall, hitting the, hitting the, uh, the windshield, Breaking the person's windshield and so on and so forth—all oh, that's second causes, right? That's proximate, that's close. Those are the immediate things that that are around us. But we recognize that beyond all of that, behind all of that, above all of that, is God, who's sovereign, the first cause behind all these things that are that are coming, coming to pass. So what's happening here in part is that the the these Syrians, right? They they are uh, they're. They're thinking as men about God as if he's a man, and that's forced them to think merely in terms of temporal, secondary causation. You know, the, it, we did this, we fought them in the hills, they're stronger in the hills, we got beat, if we take them to the plains, then the plains will be better, we'll stronger, we'll beat them, and so on and so forth. And God is outside of the picture, really. The tr- living and true God is outside of the picture. You think of a few passages that bring this to the four in ways that are helpful by way of, of, of application. So you think of Jeremiah and his lamentation in chapter 3, verse 37, middle of the chapter, we have this, these words. Who is he that saith, and it cometh to pass, when the Lord commanded it not? It's a rhetorical question. Who is he that saith, and it cometh to pass, when the Lord commanded it not? No one. No one can say something and bring it to pass without God commanding it. And he's he's acknowledging the sovereign hand of God behind these things. Or you think of the uh, more familiar text in Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 9. A man's heart deviseth his way, but the Lord directeth his path or you go back to that passage we were noting earlier of how God's bringing everything in Ephesians 1 where the Lord's bringing everything to pass according to the counsel of his own will it's one thing for us to come uh, to 1st kings chapter 20 and to assess these pagan assyrians and to see the way in which they're limiting god but we can do that and keep it at a safe distance and think, okay, this is, this is their problem, this is other people's problem, we're free of this, we're Calvinists as they say, and so on and so forth. But it trickles down into our own lives because we live far too much among second causes. Without rising in our hearts and minds to the first cause. And that is because we have a tendency... Our mind's eye does not rise to the thought of God and of his glory like it should. We sit on the surface ourselves. We who know better, who are taught, who know our Bibles, and who know, many of us savingly, the living and true God. We nevertheless sit on the surface and will behold events that are unfolding and will behold people's actions and all that's happening with that. The things that are happening right before our nose. Without ever looking past them. Without ever looking through them. Without ever looking above them. Without ever seeing God's hand in them. And this is important for us. It's important for those who are in a state of grace. For for those who who are true Christians. Because this deepens And this sweetens our communion with God, to have an eye, a mind, a heart that is fixed on God's hand, that is seeing God at work, that is beholding God's glory and all that's happening. We actually learn one of the ways in which we learn to walk with God, to actually walk with him by walking before him, by being conscious of him, by pursuing His work at all points. You stub your toe. Not an accident. The Lord's in that. He's getting your attention for something. Why? What? You know, the person who's driving 20 miles an hour under the speed limit in front of you is there for a reason. You know, the the, the difficult interchange that you have with the person at work, the sickness that comes to you, all these other things, right? We can multiply a million things. The Lord is at work in all these things. And it prompts questions, doesn't it? If we're thinking in terms of the Lord and his work and his hand and all that's taking place, it both prompts questions on one hand. It also informs our prayers on the other. You know, we ask ourselves or we ask the Lord in prayer, what is he about? What is the Lord about? You know, what are his purposes in these circumstances? What is the Lord Revealing to us about himself, about ourselves. What is he conveying through the unfolding circumstances? How is he leading? How is he perhaps convicting or chastening? How is he comforting? How is he furnishing us with wisdom and so on? And this is, these are important questions. They're important questions because this is one means by which we grow in wisdom. We're we're, we're growing in wisdom, we're growing in spiritual discernment through these means as we use the Bible in in interpreting what it is that God is about. See, this, this flies in the face of a modern notion within Reformed circles that says, we have no infallible interpretation of providence. And they draw the conclusion, therefore, we have no interpretation of providence at all. Now, some people will assert this self-consciously and principially. Others adopt it without without recognizing him. This idea that because we we do not have an infallible interpretation of providence, that therefore we have no interpretation of providence at all, that's not true. And so they'll say things like, well, you can't say that God is doing this or God is doing that or God is doing something else, whether on the big scale or, or the small scale. I'm sorry, but that's wrong. It's wrong in terms of what the Lord's word gives us, right? We, we even sing in places uh, throughout the Psalms where we're being encouraged to study the works of God's providence for the purpose of either growing wise or at the end of one psalm, is it 107, in order that we might grow in our our assurance of the loving kindness of God, and so on. We're seeing his hand, his goodness and mercy is pursuing us all the days of our life. And it's not just theoretical on paper, it's something we can actually take from the paper and apply to particular circumstances in which we find ourselves. It's important for growing in wisdom, right? We're not to be, we're not to be fashioning a God who is limited we we would say on paper unlimited he's the unlimited god but then in practice drawing lines of of limitation around him and it's also helpful for us you know here they're saying the lord god is the god of the hills he is not the god of the valleys and some so often the obstacle for us is the failure once again, to see clearly. The failure to see clearly because it's without the light of God himself shining upon us. Right, The Christian is to keep their eye glued on God's hand. Behind everything that's happening, underneath everything else that's happening. This, this fuels spiritual mindedness. So you take on the one hand... You know, we meditate upon the law of God day and night. What's happening there? Well, really what's happening is love, right? Oh, how I love thy law. Therefore, it is the, med- I meditate and it's my meditation day and night. And so because we love the law of God, we love the word of God. Therefore, we think about what we love. And we ruminate. We, we meditate upon it. It occupies our thoughts. And so that is easy for us to, to, to connect. You know, we understand those things. And, and not only do what we love is what we think about. What we think about is what we talk about. All these things uh, are, are, flow together. So we, we understand that when it comes to God's word. It's true with regards, with regards to God's works as well. We look at creation and the design and beauty and everything else. That, and there we love it because we love the thought of God and what it reveals to us of his glory. Same with the work of of providence. We love to meditate upon the works, the work of God's providence, because there we want a sight of God himself. We want communion with him. We want to meet him in the unfolding events of providence and to have sweet communion with him in those things, to be led by him and to worship him and to glean from all that he is teaching us and instructing us, right? This fuels spiritual mindedness. And the opposite fuels earthly mindedness, where we we think about events, we think about people, we think about the things we see merely at the human level. Well, so and so said this and did that, and this happened over here, and that happened over there, and we never move beyond the surface. There's a spiritual deadness in that, because it's earthly-minded. It's 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 a, pra- a a practical way of placing limitations upon the Lord, and we're not to limit Him. You know, this text, this text reinforces the fact that God demonstrates that He cannot be limited because they've said this, therefore will I deliver all this great multitude into thy hand. Because they've talked this way and thought this way, because of that, on that basis, I am going to deliver all this great multitude into thy hand. He demonstrates irrefutably in his providence that he cannot be limited to the consternation of the wicked. And he does this repeatedly throughout the scriptures and throughout the course of history. To the consternation of the wicked. Who seek to bottle up Jehovah. He disregards man's alleged limitations. And he confounds their idolatry. And all that they have placed upon him. And as we see in this text. He punishes their insolence. Of limiting him who is unlimited. We can sometimes implicitly say what God can and what God cannot do. We think it without saying it at times. We can be tempted to say, in our own way, he's the God of the hills, but not the God of the valleys. And so trials appear in our, in our life. And we think, well, the Lord is able to deliver in other things, not able to deliver in this. Or we can see how God brings good and glory out of this thing and that thing and the other thing. But I can't see how he brings good and glory. Good to me, glory to him out of this particular trial. You're in essence saying he's the God of the hills, but not of the valleys. You know, you're placed with you know unconverted loved ones in your life and you you think to yourself i i cannot imagine i can't see a way i can brainstorm and think and i can't come up with a way or means or mechanism or order of events or something else that will somehow bring about the conversion of this person he's the god of the hills but not the god of the valleys limitations on him you think to yourself well there are needs that you're facing and it's the same same circumstances that we've already described or you you think of enormous hurdles that are placed in front of you in terms of service to God or in terms of executing our duty toward him and toward others and so on and so forth and we we bump up against these these barriers and there is an implicit tacit inclination to place limitations upon the Lord. And that's a provocation to him. It's a provocation because it's a defiance of his his own glory. He is able to do all of his holy will. He's able to do all of his holy will. There is nothing that is too difficult for him. And indeed, what is impossible with man is possible with God. I said earlier that the heart of, really, a love for the doctrines of grace and all that lies behind it is an all-engrossing sight of the majesty of God. That is what we need. We need that all-engrossing sight of the majesty of God. The august majesty of God's comprehensive sovereignty must always be affirmed, must always be asserted, must always be defended, but it is not a doctrine that is to be confined, confined to paper. It's not to be confined to paper. It must pervade our thoughts. And it must pervade our thoughts in ways that impact our practice, that inflame our prayers, that transform our lives. Anything less than that, anything short of that is unbecoming and unsuitable to the glory of such a God as this. Jehovah, the living and the true God. The one beside whom there is no other. The one who is all himself and only in himself, the living and the true God. He is unlimited in his glory, in his being, and where to see him as such, where to worship him as such. Right, the, the, the proper response, as I said earlier, the proper response to the revelation of the glory of God is to get on our faces, to bow our hearts as well as our knees, and to adore him, to worship him. This is what the Lord is aiming at with Israel. He's saying, I'm going to slaughter them, and he did. 100,000 died. 100,000 souls swept out of this world in an instant in order that his people may be brought to know that he is God, that he is the Lord, and that they would be brought to worship him as such. May the Lord bless these things to our hearing. Almighty God in heaven, we do bow down before thy majesty. And as is so often the case, O Lord, we confess that we merely lisp like little children about these things and confess that we know all too little of them. Even those who know them the most know so little. Give us, we pray, this all-encompassing, all-absorbing sight of thy glory. As one who is unlimited in thy being, give to us, O Lord, to root our very souls, our thoughts, our hearts, our affections, our consciences, our lives, and the bedrock of thy being. Give to us, O Lord, that we would be brought to see and to know in greater and greater degrees that Thou art Jehovah, and that we would be led to worship. We ask it in Jesus' name.